We don't aim to solve all the world's problems, but we do offer you peace of mind, hope, laughter, and ideas on how you can help improve circumstances and communities. Good change is for you. For us, we take to heart your concerns about anger, injustice, and helplessness, the pain that we each feel, and give you something better to witness, something better to believe in. In many ways, this podcast is the opposite of self-help. It's us help. We draw attention to kindness, to the better angels of our nature. We swap stories that bring smiles, deep breaths, inspiration, and ideas to help us evolve. We introduce you to people who are positively transforming lives, leaders of movements, or everyday heroes who are making change. Good change. Good Change highlights the common ground we share, the unlimited positive impact of a single person, and the greater good. Welcome to Good Change, a podcast about making a world of difference. Please welcome your host and Good Change maker, Ken Streeter. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Good Change podcast. With us tonight is behavioral designer Nir Ayol, also best-selling author of Hooked and Indistractable and a Stanford lecturer. My copies of his books are dog-eared. I refer to him time and again. It's an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. By the way, you know, you saying that the book is dog-eared is like catnip for authors. I love it. That's, that's the best compliment you could ever give an author. Well, and it's very true and it's highlighted and uh, I've given away a couple of copies. I've owned more than one copy, I've given some away. So um, you're in Singapore and um, enjoying what I'm assuming is a cosmopolitan life over there? That's right. Yeah, we've been here for a little over a year. We kind of go back and forth between uh, New York and Singapore. This year we have, this year we've just uh, stayed put in Singapore while this uh, corona crisis plays out. And uh, yeah, we're, 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 we're enjoying it. Right on it. And so can you give us a little bit of your background, just how you came to be on this podcast today, kind of the, the braided stream approach to being here, which includes, yeah. of course, your premier authorship and, and other adventures? Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I would say that I'm first and foremost, a, a father and a husband and uh, a friend. And uh, uh, that's, that's kind of my most important uh, obligations. And um, then I also do a lot of work in terms of behavioral design, where I help companies uh, build products and services that can build good habits in people's lives. So I, I taught a class at Stanford for many years uh, about behavioral design. I taught the Graduate School of Business. And then later I moved over to the Hasselflatter Institute of Design at Stanford. And uh, the goal of my work uh, in my first book and in these classes was about how can we use technology to facilitate healthy habits in people's lives. So a few examples, uh, I worked with a, a company called Kahoot that uh, gets kids hooked onto learning. It's one of the world's largest uh, education software companies, uh, publicly traded now, doing really well, touching the lives of millions and millions of children, getting them hooked to learning. I've worked with companies in the healthcare and the fitness space to get people hooked to exercise. Uh, I've even uh, worked with and invested in companies. I, I made a recent investment in a company called Cutback Coach that uses my work, uses the hook model to help people cut back on their consumption of alcohol. So the idea here is that we can use the techniques, the secret psychology behind what makes products like Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat so sticky we could use that for good. We can build good habits in people's lives with this technology. But then a few years ago, I started researching the other side of the coin. I wanted to look at how can we 
break the bad habits. If hooked is about how do we build good habits, indistractable is about how do we break those bad habits. And this was a very personal journey. I, I found that I was incredibly distracted uh, with all kinds of things in my life. And I, I wasn't uh, living according to my values, not because I didn't know what to do. And I think most people face this dilemma today. We all basically know what to do, right? We know that if we want to get in shape, we have to eat right and exercise. Who, who doesn't know that? We don't need to buy a diet book to tell us that. We all know. We just don't do it. Uh, we all know that if we want better relationships with our family and friends, we have to be fully present with them. We know that. <laughs> Who doesn't know that if you want to uh, excel at your job, you have to do the work, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do, right? It's not that we don't know how to write that novel we've always been wanting to write. We know that it's not uh, that we don't know how to accomplish uh, that, 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 you know, get that sale or whatever it might be that we have a, a, an ambition to, to do at work. It's that we just don't do it. We keep getting in our own way. And I think that is the challenge of our time is that we have so much information. We're drowning in information. We don't need, uh, there, there's no scarcity in terms of, of knowing what to do. The problem is we don't know how to get out of our own way. We don't know how to stop getting distracted. And so that's really why I wanted to uh, research this book, Indistractable, and, and, and write it over the past five years was really selfishly for myself, right? I needed to know how to become indistractable because I think it's such an important skill. And I'm happy to report that after writing this book, there's no area of my life that hasn't been positively impacted. Uh, I'm 43 years old and I'm in the best shape of my life. I used to be obese. Today, I'm in the best physical shape I've ever been. Uh, uh, my mental health, my physical health has improved. Uh, my relationships are better than ever. I'm more productive at work than ever before not because I have more skill, but because I have more follow through. I simply do what it is I say I'm going to do. So, so um, can you share with us in your book, you talk about the difference between traction and distraction. And I think both of those words are common words. People understand the simple meaning of them, but explain the impact that traction versus distraction has when it comes to achievement. Absolutely. And I think this is one of those areas that uh, I, I thought I understood. You know, if you ask most people whether they understand what the definition of distraction is, we kind of all think we know what, what distraction is. But when you press people further, you're like, wait, wait, do we really understand what that word means? A good way to test your understanding is to see if you know the opposite of a word, right? Test yourself and see if you know the antonym. And so ask yourself, what's the opposite of distraction? Most people will tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, right? Mm -hmm. The opposite of distraction is focus. That would make sense, but that's not true. That the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the origin of the word, the Latin root, the Latin root for both words is trahare, which means to pull. And you'll also notice that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction by definition is any action that pulls back to the Latin root, trahare, that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things that you do with intent, things that help move you towards your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you plan to do, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of distraction. So why is this so important? Is this just wordplay and semantics? No, it really matters. The reason it really matters is because any action 
can be traction or distraction. Let me give you an example. So for years, I would sit down on my desk at work and I would say, okay, I'm not gonna procrastinate. I'm gonna get started on that big job I have to do. There's that very important thing on my to-do list. I know I've been putting off. I gotta get started. I'm gonna do that. That is the most important thing I have to do. Here I go. I'm gonna get started right now. But first, let me check some email, Yeah. right? <laughs> let me scroll that Slack channel. Let me uh, do that easy task on my to-do list just to get started, right? Just to get going because those are work-related tasks. I got to do that sometime today. And what I didn't realize is that I was giving in to the most dangerous, pernicious form of distraction, which is when distraction tricks you into prioritizing the urgent and the easy work as opposed to the important and hard work. And that is super dangerous. We do this all the time. We say to ourselves, oh, I, I got to just check some email. I got to do that anyway. That's a work-related task. And what we don't realize is that we have given in yet again to distraction. And this is why we keep not doing the things we know we need to do with our time. Because anything that you do that is not what you plan to do with intent in advance is by definition a distraction. Wow. And conversely, anything you plan to do is traction. So if you decide you want to play video games or scroll social media, or I don't care, whatever it is you want to do with your time, this book is not about telling you what to do with your time. It's about helping you do whatever it is you want to do with your time. What I'm trying to prevent is people looking back on their lives and saying, I wish I would have put more time into this, that, or the other, spending more time with my kids, working on a big project, pursuing my ambitions. But I didn't because I was too busy you know, watching Netflix or scrolling Facebook or working a job I didn't really like, whatever the case might be, anything that is not what you plan to do with your time is by definition a distraction. Everything else is traction. But if you want to do those things, whatever it is you want to do, if you want to spend all day playing video games, I got no problem with that as long as you're doing it with intent. That's what is the difference between traction and distraction. It's forethought, it's intent. So that's a very, very, very important uh, distinction because if we are going to live in accordance with our values, we have to understand what is the difference between traction and distraction in our own lives. Because you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Very important point. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. But most people haven't even defined what do they want to do with their time. And then they look back on our day and they say, oh, I was so hairy today and I wanted to do this, I wanted to do that, but I didn't get anything done. Well, because we didn't really define for ourselves what is traction, and therefore we wouldn't even know what is distraction. So that's an excellent, excellent definition. And you, you dive deeply into that in your book. And you just touched on something that I think is a cornerstone to this philosophy, this, this concept, and that is establishing or understanding or maybe even discovering your values as, right. as key to living an indistractable life. Absolutely. Yeah. Values are, are another one of these words. You know, I'm kind of a word nerd, I, I think. <laughs> you know, words really matter. We toss around these terms like values. But when you ask people to define what, what, is, what are values? What, what do you mean by that word? What does that word mean to you? Uh, you get a lot of squishy definitions. Uh, here's my definition. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So one of the keys to becoming indistractable is to turn your values into time. You know, we can talk about our values all day long, but if we don't walk the walk, if we just talk the talk, then we're not really living our values. We're just espousing them. We're being hypocrites. We're saying we want one thing, but we're doing something else. So it's really about turning your values into time 
by asking yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their day? Hmm. Simple as that. As opposed to, you know, five-year vision boards or regrets of the dying or, you know, yearly goals. Let's just start with tomorrow. Okay. Just tomorrow. How would the person you want to become spend their time? And so what I ask people to do is this exercise of looking at their three life domains. So what I want you to do is take out a calendar, right? You look at the week ahead and you can do this with a paper and pen. You can do this with, you know, Google calendar or whatever calendaring tool you want. doesn't really matter. And I want you to ask yourself for these three life domains, which I'll explain in a second, how would the person I want to become spend their time starting with you? You are at the center of these three life domains, okay? So what I want you to do is to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time taking care of themselves? Now, what's included in that life domain? Uh, If you're the kind of person who's part of your values include uh, uh, learning and self-study, educating yourself, great. Do you have time in your day booked and reserved for reading or taking an online class or whatever it is that you want to do with your time, whatever's consistent with your values? Uh, if, if physical health is important to you, you know, you ask people what are, what's important to you in life. Oh, definitely my physical health, super important. Nothing's more important than health. But then when you look at their calendar, do they have time planned for exercise, a walk, uh, proper nutrition, sleep, big one. We've all been told ad nauseum about how important sleep is. How many of us tell our kids, you have to go to bed on time, but when it comes to ourselves, no, we don't have a bedtime. Right. So that needs to be in your calendar. If you think if it's important to you, if it's about how the person you want to become spends their time, put it in your schedule, book that time. So that's the you domain. Then we have the relationship domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we know that we are going through a loneliness epidemic uh, in this country, worldwide, in fact, there is this loneliness epidemic, particularly in industrialized countries, uh, where people are really losing touch with each other. We know that people have fewer friends than ever before. And the reason that we are going through this loneliness epidemic is that we don't have the time books for what we used to do to interact with other people, right? And and this is not a new phenomenon. This is not something that came about with social media. Robert Putnam wrote about this back in the 1990s in his book, Bowling Alone, where he noticed this phenomenon of people interacting with each other in formally planned settings uh, that previous generations used to have and we don't have. You know, so for example, the bowling league, Hey, every Thursday we're going to get together and we're going to go bowling. Uh, the, 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 the church club, the, the, the um, Kiwanis, the uh, Toastmasters, whatever, these organizations have all seen declining. You know, as society has become more secularized, we have fewer occasions booked in our calendars to interact with other people. And that's why we are becoming more lonely. It's not social media. Social media is only the reflection, the symptom of this deeper problem that we don't book time to interact with people we love. One of the the, the, uh, silver linings of this very dark cloud of COVID is that people have now started booking time with their important relationships over Zoom, right? So in my family, we have every Saturday night, we get together over Zoom. Now that we're all in quarantine, we we can't see each other physically. We see each other virtually over Zoom, which is great. And I hope that carries over even after the pandemic, that people will reserve that time for the important relationship in their life, whether it's with their kids, whether it's with their spouse, whether it's with their friends, we need that time booked in our calendar and held aside for the important relationships in our life. So that's the relationship domain. And then finally, the work domain, which is where most people start when they think about planning their time, 
but actually I believe needs to come last. And work can be bifurcated into two kinds of work. We have what we call reactive work and reflective work. Reactive work is how most people spend most of their day reacting to things, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to meetings, reacting to all these things outside of them. Reflective work, however, is where real work gets done. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. Planning, thinking, creative time, all that can only get done if we can do it without distraction. The problem is very few people plan time to think. They're mindlessly running through their day real fast in the wrong direction because all they're doing is reactive work. And I understand some part of your day has to be reactive work. I get it. Part of your job involves that. But if you're not planning at least some time in your day for reflective work, if you're not planning that time and keeping it sacred, you're missing out on a huge, huge opportunity. You've got to plan that time as well. So this is really how we turn our values into time by making time for traction in our day. And, and reflective work, I mean, obviously there's a, it's a derivative of reflect and reflection. And it seems to me as though reflective work is to, to get to a semi-spiritual level is, is more soul-driven or purpose-driven or heart-driven, even if it's at a, a job that may not encompass some of those characteristics. Sure, sure. Yeah, just giving yourself the time to actually think. It's amazing how many of us just run through our day real fast thinking we're being productive. And it turns out when we take a step back and actually reflect upon, wait a minute, what did I do? And what, what mission does this serve? And what's the purpose of all this? Oh, I don't really know. That was a big waste of time. <laughs> so that's why I say running fast in the wrong direction gets us nowhere. Yeah, well put. You mentioned something earlier about culture and that distraction isn't necessarily an extension of social media, of technology. It starts with the culture, and you talked about uh, the, the Putnam book and bowling leagues. Uh, do you find that, that there are certain cultures, uh, first world cult cultures, that are less distracted than others? So in, in my book, I talk about, uh, there's a whole section around uh, the workplace. And this is an area where culture really, really matters. It's interesting. So um, I talk about how to build an indistractable workplace because, you know, frankly, you, know, I, I, you can become indistractable. You can follow the four big pillars that I talk about in the book on how to become indistractable and become indistractable yourself. But what if you work at a company that's crazy distracted, mm -hmm. that your boss is constantly interrupting you and, and, and making it very difficult for you to, to uh, uh, do reflective work? What do you do then? And so I thought it was very important to dive into this problem because I wanted to understand it myself. I mean, was, it, was this going to sabotage all these techniques if you work at a company where, where people are very, uh, there's these sources of distraction outside of yourself that come from your colleagues and your boss? So I wanted to figure out what is the difference between a workplace that is distractible versus one that is indistractable. And I, I, I came to some pretty interesting conclusions. One of them was that it actually has very little to do with the technology. And I'll prove it to you. I went to a, a company called Slack. You probably know Slack, right? It's the world's largest uh, group messaging service. And uh, uh, they were recently acquired. And, and so, you know, this company uh, was publicly traded and it was a technology that many people in fact blamed for making them distracted, right? Well, I'm always on these Slack channels and people are constantly picking me and I feel like I constantly need to stop what I'm doing to re respond. And so I you know, banged on their door. And I said, I wanted to see what was going on at Slack, right? And I expected to see a company 
that was highly distracted because nobody uses Slack more than the people at Slack. They build the software and so they use it all day, every day. And that's not what I found. They weren't distracted at all. In fact, I learned that at Slack, if you use the software on nights and weekends, you are reprimanded. That is not what they do. You are told, don't do that. Nights and weekends, we don't use Slack. You should be offline. You should be with your family. Uh, I found out to my amazement when I walked into company headquarters in the canteen, right? In like the place where people get lunch together and, and, and congregate, there's a huge neon sign. You can't miss it. Huge neon letters. It says, work hard and go home. Mm, nice. <laughs> you would not expect that in a Silicon Valley yeah. company, right? But that's, that's part of their company culture is to respect people's time. And so we, you know, but what I concluded was that in fact, building an indistractable workplace was about these three things in terms of the company culture that, that uh, uh, distraction in the workplace is a symptom of a dysfunctional culture, but culture can change. So here's what they did, three things. Number one, provide psychological safety. That when people can't talk about the problem of distraction, that is the problem. The problem is that they can't solve the problem because they can't talk about it, right? So the reason they can't talk about it is because of fear of retribution, fear that they'll be thought of as lazy, not a team player, because they want to talk about this problem of distraction, right? So if you work in the kind of place where you can't raise your hand and say, hey, boss, you know, it's really hard for me to finish my work because people keep constantly pinging and dinging me. How do we solve this? If you feel like, ooh, that might get me fired or people might think poorly of me, you're not going to bring up the problem. So that's number one, establish psychological safety. And I talked about it in the book uh, about how to do that. Next is that people have a forum to talk about these problems. They have a dedicated place to facilitate these, these, uh, these, these questions. Because the fact of the matter is if you can't talk about the problem of distraction at your company, I promise you, you have a closet full of other skeletons in your closet that you're not talking about uh, as well. So do you have a forum to talk about these types of problems? And then number three, Company management exemplifies what it means to be indistractable. I, I can't tell you how many uh, companies I would do work workshops at before uh, COVID where I would go, you know, I'd fly out. They'd hire me for this big expensive workshop. They'd all get together so that I could teach the employees how to be indistractable. And in the back of the room, the big boss is sitting there checking email on his or her phone uh, during the meeting, setting a terrible example. Culture is like water. It flows downhill. And so we need management to exemplify what it means to be indistractable. And I think Slack is a good example of a company where from Stuart Butterfield, the, the CEO on down, it was something that was in the company culture, you know, as, as displayed by that neon sign, work hard and go home. It's something that they themselves, the company management wanted to, to uh, impart to the employees that this is important to us, it's part of our company culture. Uh, so yeah, so that's a, that's a great example of, of how uh, an organization can be distractible or indistractable. And then, and then what about taking it out to an international level? Are there certain first world countries that uh, you have found to be less, uh, less distractible than others? Or is this a, just a global issue? Well, distraction is nothing new. <laughs> and, and I'd imagine it's, it, it knows no borders either. I mean, uh, Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. Right, 2,500 years before. Near 2,500 years ago. Exactly. Yeah, before yeah. the iPhone, before Facebook, 2,500 years ago, 
people were complaining about how distracted people are. And so, you know, I, I haven't studied specifically uh, cross-cultural differences, and I'm sure there are different norms and manners around what you, uh, you know, what, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable in different cultures. Um, but it's been pretty worldwide from what I've seen. I mean, I'm here in Singapore and I was just out to a dinner with some friends uh, here where we're, we're allowed to congregate in small groups. It's legal here as long as people are wearing masks, et cetera. And, you know, I got to admit that uh, the people hadn't read my book <laughs> and a few people at the table were on their phones while we were trying to, to have a conversation. I called them out. (laughs) That's a great, great opportunity for listeners and viewers to hear about a good way to do that. How did you do it? Yeah. So this is tricky, right? Because um, you don't want to lose a friend if you call them out. You don't want to say, hey, get off your phone. That's very mean. And and it can feel very like you're condescending uh, to them. and, And it can be, it can feel very patronizing. And frankly, you know, we don't know what's on the other side of that screen. If someone is at the table, so let me give you the perfect scenario. So we were five people uh, around the dinner table and at a restaurant and uh, two of the five were on their phones. And to be honest, I don't know what was on the other side of that screen. Maybe there was an emergency, maybe, you know, who knows? Um, So I want to make sure that I provide that grace, that that, um, benefit of the doubt that there might be something super important. So what you don't want to do, you don't want to say, get off the phone, right? That, that can make people, you know, uh, not, not like you very much if you're, if you're aggressive that way. But to sincerely ask, you know, to sincerely ask, hey, I see you're on your phone. Is everything okay? Hmm. Which opens the door for them to say, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. There's this emergency with my kid or I really got to take care of this. No problem. If, you know, then they typically get up and they go take care of it somewhere else. I don't have any problem with people using their phone. You know, it's like, if you have to use the bathroom, you go and use the bathroom in the middle of dinner. It's just something you have to do. Okay. I understand. Maybe there's an emergency, no problem, but do it there. Don't do it at the dinner table when we're trying to have a conversation and I, I'm losing from you not being part of this conversation. So uh, I think that's changing. I think norms are changing. People understand now that it's uh, we have a new word for it. It's fubbing, phone snubbing, uh, that it feels very, you know, we, we start understanding that manners, what, what, why do we have manners in the first place? Manners are about making other people feel comfortable. So I wouldn't eat with my mouth full when I'm, you know, I, or talk with my mouth full because it makes other people uncomfortable to see the food in my face. It's gross. It's not, it doesn't make me feel good. Um, and so we have manners that prevent people from doing behaviors that make others feel uncomfortable. And I think we're learning that if we're across the table, that having a phone up and trying to pay attention to the person across from me while you're looking at the phone is, is rude, right? And so we're starting to spread what's called social antibodies, that when societies uh, have certain behaviors that hurt, the, that are antisocial, we begin to spread new norms, new manners that, that help us uh, do away with these, uh, uh, these, these bad habits, these bad social habits. And so, you know, using something like this technique that I talk about of saying, hey, I see you're on your phone, is everything okay? Nine times out of 10, they'll get the hint and they'll either say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I have to take care of this thing. Okay, fine. Then they excuse themselves or they say, oh, sorry about that. Let me put it away. They, they snap out of it. You, you mentioned, uh, obviously, social discomfort to an extent. And I love the fact that your books, you talk about values, you talk about manners, and you help us understand kind of the root of, of why certain behaviors are, are impactful, as opposed to just uh, defining the, the behaviors and then telling us how to 
change them either with ourselves or make suggestions with friends. Um, and then in your book, Hooked, the thing that I love that you did was you described the, the different ways that, that people get hooked and then pleaded may not be the right word, but it seems like it might've fit. You pleaded with folks to make sure that if they were being hooked, that it was for something good. And I think mm -hmm. about social discomfort. I think about social distancing. I think about all of the things that we're facing right now. And, and technology has the capacity, based on your book and everything that I've read and listened and watched, um, to either create a less than good product or byproduct or a good product. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit, if you can, about why it is and, and, and why it is basically that using technology for good causes is so important in today's societies. Yeah, you know, I think that there's a, a wonderful quote by Paul Virilio who said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Mm. That every new technology uh, is going to carry a, a, a downside, a potential downside. Uh, it's interesting. This just came up yesterday. I was listening to a podcast uh, about abolitionists who, uh, in the American struggle to, uh, to, to, to ban slavery, um, many of them would print pamphlets and newsletters to spread the word about uh, the, the, the sin of slavery and why it should be abolished. And you know what they did to them? The people who, who um, disagree, the people who wanted to keep slavery legal, what they did across the country is wherever somebody was doing this, they would throw their printing press into the water. This was a very common thing to do that many, many abolitionists had their printing presses you know, um, taken by the mob and thrown into the river mm. so that they couldn't publish. <laughs> and so this is nothing new, you know, using technology. And of course, today we think that's crazy. These people were on a, 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 a had a wonderful pursuit to, to abolish slavery. Of course, you know, today it's common sense. How could you be for slavery? But back then, this was a very well-held belief that slavery was just fine. And the status quo was was not to uh, not, not not to mess with it, and so you know when when people started speaking out about it, uh, speaking this truth, uh, that that was one of the things that people thought was the source of the problem was their ability to spread uh, something that they disagreed with, and I think we see this happening today. That whenever there is a technological change that empowers more people to get their opinions out there, many of their opinions we don't like, and we don't we you know we don't appreciate, and of course. I'm not saying that we shouldn't like all their opinions. I'm saying that there's certainly an adjustment period where we figure out, okay, what are the constraints of this, of this technology? How can we use it for good? And the solution is not, you know, just like Paul Virilio said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. What did we do with ships? Did we stop sailing ships? Of course not. Did we stop using the printing press? Of course not. We made these technologies better. We established uh, social constraints around what you can print, right? You can't incite violence. There are constraints to speech, uh, you know, that, that we established. We have, con uh, we improved technology. So when we invented the ship, of course there were shipwrecks. We didn't stop sailing ships. We made the technology of ship sailing better, uh, not by banning it, but by improving it. And we see the exact same thing happening today, that what human beings have always done in the entire history of technological innovation is two things. We adapt and we adopt. We adopt new technologies to improve the last generation of technologies. 
And we adopt our behaviors, norms, laws, manners to help us cope with the downside of these technologies so that we can keep the upsides. And that's exactly what we see happening today with, with modern technology. So in terms of hope and taking a deep breath and being able to relax when it comes to things that are being generated by technology, social media is a perfect example. Uh, what, what do you see happening in the world today that should give people reason to believe that technology is absolutely being used for the best? Man, you know, the best example is, is this pandemic. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine for a second, let's say it wasn't COVID-19. Let's say it was COVID-90, hmm. right? Let's put ourselves in a time machine and go back to the year 1990 and imagine what would have happened if COVID, uh, if there had been this outbreak in the year 1990 as opposed to 2019. I mean, can you imagine? Hmm. This technology saved us. And I'm not even talking about the amazing advances in terms of the vaccines. That's, that's of course, obvious, incredible how quickly people developed this, these vaccines based on, uh, on modern technology, right? No way we could have done it in the year 1990. The technology simply wasn't there. But even from an interpersonal perspective, I mean, here we are, you're in Oregon, I'm in Singapore, we're talking over the span of thousands of miles with these amazing technology for free <laughs> over this video phone magic that if you had shown me when I was a kid, I would have been, you know, absolutely gobsmacked that this could exist. This is science fiction here. Uh, you know, the fact that we are connected to each other in such a way that we can still uh, you know, my daughter can see her grandparents uh, thousands of miles away, uh, that we still have these relationships, that we can still connect with each other, that information can be so easily distributed. I mean, this is incredible. And we don't even stop to think about it because the change has happened, uh, even though it's happened so fast, day to day, it feels gradual. And I don't think we've had the time to actually take a step back and, be like, and, and, and acknowledge how much good has come out of this as well. Uh, and, and so I think it's, it's pretty obvious, especially with this latest pandemic, that uh, we are, uh, this is net net a, a very, very good thing. Now, does that mean that there are not downsides? Of course there are downsides. Uh, there's lots of things that we need to hold Silicon Valley companies accountable for. Uh, and I think we're doing that. And, uh, but, but that doesn't mean that we can't have the best of both worlds, that we can't have our cake needed too by using technology to build these good habits, as well as understanding how we can break the bad habits. So give us an example of how we're holding technology accountable at this point in order to facilitate good change. So I think there's all, all kinds of, of regulatory changes that are, are probably a good idea, right? So the monopoly status of these companies, yeah, we need to look at that. <laughs> uh, I think when it comes to uh, potential election interference, yeah, we need to look at that. I'm not uh, you know, the, it's a deeper issue. I'm not an expert in terms of, of uh, you know, how these companies, uh, you know, what happened in the previous elections, et cetera. Um, but I, I think that uh, there are definitely things to hold these companies accountable for. But in terms of are these products addicting us? Are they hijacking our brain? This is an area I'm, I am an expert in. And I will tell you that uh, it's ridiculous, that it's not, that, that in fact, not only is it not true, this idea that technology is addicting us and hijacking our brains, not only is it not true, it's actually harmful. It's ironically exactly what the tech companies want you to believe. They want you to believe that you're addicted. They want you to believe there's nothing you can do about it. They want you to believe it's hijacking your brain because what do people do when they believe there's nothing they can do about something? 
Right. They do nothing. And so that was why that's a big reason why it was so important for me to write Indistractable was to show people actually there's so much you can do. You are so much more powerful than these tech companies. Here's how. And 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 there's some, you know, in, in an hour or two, you can read this book. I promise you, if you read the book and follow the four steps in the book on how to become indistractable, anyone can become indistractable. Unless you're struggling with some kind of pathology, uh, the vast majority of people out there can absolutely become indistractable, not just when it comes to technology, but all the distractions in their life that prevent them from doing what they themselves want to do. And that, that's the four pillars you alluded to earlier. Right, exactly. So we have, we talked about traction, we talked about distraction, then we have what we call external and internal triggers. External triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that can lead us off track. But that's only about 10% of the reason we get distracted. The other 90% comes from what we call the internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Hmm. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. This is 90% of the time that we get distracted. This is why. It's our inability to deal with emotional discomfort. So now we have our four steps to the uh, indistractable model, master the internal triggers, make time for traction, pack back the external triggers and prevent distraction with packs. When you use these four strategies in concert, anyone can become indistractable. And having read the book and applied those, I can tell you I'm a believer. I'm a believer. Oh, oh I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, you know, as, as I mentioned, it's, it's really, I wrote this book for me. I was getting distracted. And I, I got to tell you, um, I'm so glad I embarked on this line of research, specifically because I finished it before the pandemic started. Uh, the book was published. I mean, I don't know how I would have gotten through it without this, because, you know, in, it, especially in times of heightened stress, heightened anxiety, when the world became such a crazy place uh, during Corona, and all I wanted to do was watch the news, which wasn't always healthy for me, right? The news media, I don't care if it's the New York Times or CNN or Fox or Facebook, any media company, they all make money the same way. They sell your attention to advertisers. They don't care if you're well-informed. They don't ever say, hey, you've had enough news now, please go away, stop watching. No, they want you to stay with them as much as possible because that's how they make money. So to be able to know that this was happening and understand how to put it in its place, right? It's important to stay informed. That's great but not to the extent that we are wasting our lives worrying about other people's problems somewhere halfway around the world, as opposed to having to deal with our own discomfort. It was, it was, I was very glad for myself that I could utilize these techniques. And I, and I have to tell you, there is no area of my life that hasn't been improved uh, since I, I, I finished this, this research, uh, whether it's my physical health, my mental health. Uh, I'm 43 years old. I've never been in this good a shape in my life. <laughs> my relationship with my family, my work, I mean, it is the macro scale that makes everything else possible. Beautiful. You, you touched on uh, the issue of media, and I'm, I'm going to ask a pretty loaded question here because clearly you've studied what influences us. What do you think are the biggest obstacles or, or maybe the biggest obstacle that is getting in the way of us healing ourselves as a, as a country? I don't want to focus on the globe. That's obviously a universal problem, but in terms of the United States, what are, what are the biggest obstacles that, that we face to our, to our healing? Hmm. You know, I think um, I, I wrote an article recently entitled, Love is Measured by the Benefit of the Doubt. Love is Measured by the Benefit of the Doubt. That um, when we assume intent 
um, we potentially get into trouble. Mm -hmm. So what, when we look at, um, if we, we, we can frame our, our view of people based on a story we make up of negative intent, that someone said what they said to deliberately hurt us, to make us feel bad, or we can assume positive intent. And that's called the benefit of the doubt. And uh, a good example of this is, is with babies. You know, I talk about in the article how uh, babies are, are kind of jerks, right? Like they cry all the time. They want us to change their diapers. They, uh, they're, uh, they're hungry. Whenever they want to be fed, they expect to be fed. And of course, what I'm saying right now is ridiculous. Yeah. Why? Because they're babies. They don't right. intend, like when a baby cries, they don't intend to annoy us, right? That's why we call people who complain about babies crying on an airplane uh, jerks because what, what do you want? It's a baby. Don't, you, it's a baby. Yeah. <laughs> they can't control it. They're babies. There's no negative intent. And somehow when babies grow up, now we change our mind, mm. right? When babies grow up and become adults, now somehow it's okay to assume that if somebody said something, they meant to hurt us. They wanted to dig into us. And look, sometimes that is the case, but far less than we think. That by and large, uh, people have positive intent. And I think that's part of the problem, I think, that, that, that we face as a country is that um, not enough of us give the benefit of the doubt. We assume we know each, someone's intention to the point that it's now become ridiculous in some ways, right? If we say the wrong word in the wrong way, it's irreparable, right? That's it. You, you, you now have to be branded as, uh, for the rest of your life as someone who holds a certain opinion. And that gives zero benefit of the doubt. And so I think if I had one wish for America... Uh, it would be to 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 spread more love, and love is measured by the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, well, that's beautifully said. Beautifully said. I'm I've adopted this um, system of my own that I think touches on that, but it's not as poetic as you just described. But my my in, intentions now, whenever I'm engaged in a conversation and, and engaged in a conversation with somebody that may not be someone that I'm agreeing with, is to rest, regard, react and reflect. And I think mm. what you're saying there is, is the regard portion, which is don't cast the aspersions on them. Don't believe that their intent is bad. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Right, right. Because at the end of the day, we're, we're all just human, right? And we all make mistakes and we all put our foot in the mouth in our mouth from one thing or another at some point in our life. And we would, we would want that grace, right? Right. Everybody would love grace for themselves. And we give ourselves grace when we mess up, we know why. Right. Uh, but when someone else messes up, Oh, it's because they're a certain type of person. And so I think in general, uh, we are too quick to label people and label ourselves. Right. We, we do, we moralize and to now even medicalize perfectly healthy, normal human behavior uh, that should not be moralized and medicalized, right? If someone, we, we love to put these labels on things. And what, I, what I've learned over, over the past several years through my research is that these labels really impact how we see others and how we see ourselves. So when I hear someone saying, oh, I'm no good at time management, or I have an addictive personality, I have a short attention span, I took some personality tests and it says I'm this or that, be careful. 
be very, very careful because this kind of, you know, we know that people will act in accordance to their self-image and they will treat others based on those labels. So when we label somebody as something, we give them no benefit of the doubt because they are that thing, right? Like they're cast in stone now. And we, we have to be very, very careful of that. Those labels can be very damaging to ourselves and others. And is that the, is that the opposite of, is, is benefit of the doubt the opposite of labeling, to, so to speak? And are those recognitions and the choices that you make with them a cornerstone to finding more common ground? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that, that the, it, I mean, it's, labeling is the, is the very definition of prejudice. Right, that if I see someone as this thing, right? If I say, "Oh, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're a Christian, you're a Muslim," and if I uh, if I prejudge your attributes, that is the very definition of prejudice. Yeah. And so that that now we no longer see the person as a human being; we see them as simply a label, as an identity. And this can actually we can do this to ourselves as well. Uh, and we have to be very, very careful of it. So when we uh, judge ourselves with these labels, you know, in the book, I talk about ego depletion. Uh, this, this, this idea that uh, is kind of widely held in, in pop psychology that uh, we run out of willpower, like you run out of electricity in a battery, right? That you, you, or a gas in a gas tank, that you run out of it. Well, this gained some credibility when there was one particular researcher who studied ego depletion and uh, even if you've never heard the term, you probably acted in accordance with it. I used to do this all the time. I would come home from work and I'd say, oh, I've had such a hard day at work today. I can't make any more good choices, right? I have no more willpower left. I want that Ben and Jerry's, give it to me. I can't, I can't, I can't, I don't have any more willpower. I'm going to eat that Ben and Jerry's and watch some Netflix on TV because I'm spent, right? Spent, I'm spent. I have no, no, no willpower left. It's gone. And uh, one particular researcher found that this, this did exist until other researchers, as we do in the, in the social sciences, when a study sounds too good to be true, we replicate the study. We try and run the study again. And what the researchers found was that, in fact, ego depletion isn't real. It doesn't exist. The studies could not replicate. That now there's been meta-studies, so studies of studies, that have found there really isn't such a thing as ego depletion, except... In one case, uh, Carol Dweck, a, a researcher at Stanford, uh, she found that in fact, some people do really experience ego depletion. And those people were people who, only these people, if they believed that willpower was a limited resource, then the effect was real. Wow. That's it. Only the people who believed it was the case. And so that's why I'm rallying against this myth that technology is addictive, that it's hijacking your brain, because when we think this stuff, it becomes true. We don't, we, we prejudge ourselves and our temperament as, well, this is, this is the way I am. I, it's the way I can't change it, right? These technologies are hijacking my brain. And though, you know, you hear people throwing out these stupid things like, oh, dopamine squirts and serotonin this. And whenever you hear people throwing out brain chemicals, run because they don't know what they're talking about. We, we, it's, it's, uh, it's just another illusion of, uh, of medicalizing and moralizing otherwise perfectly uh, normal behaviors that can sometimes be a struggle. So it's not an addiction. Very few people actually have the pathology of addiction and addiction is a pathology, 
we don't talk about epilepsy this way or Tourette's syndrome this way, but somehow everybody's addicted to everything. Come on, it makes no sense. Why do we use that language? Because it, we like sometimes to give someone else the blame and the responsibility, Good right? Point. It's yeah. not me, it's the tech companies. It's not me, it's that guy doing it to me. Because when something's an addiction, there's a dealer, there's a pusher. But when, mm -hmm. when we call it what it really is, which is not an addiction, it's a distraction. Oh, wait a minute. Now I got to do something about it. That's no fun. <laughs> so it's, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, it's, it's not the problem. It's the thought about the problem. And then often the thought about the problem allows you to place blame somewhere else. It's, it's, it's certainly part of it. I, I wouldn't say it's only that, but it's certainly a contributor. It, it enables us to go down this dangerous path of, of not putting the brakes on our own behavior when we think, well, we're powerless anyways. Why should I try? So, so accountability is a cornerstone to behaviors that you're suggesting in indistractable. Right, right. There's certainly things in life. I'm not so naive to think that you can control absolutely everything in your life. There's a lot of factors outside of your control, but there's a lot more in our control than we oftentimes acknowledge. Yeah. If, if somebody wanted to buy the book and it wasn't going to show up for two or three days, miraculously, it was taking at least three or four days via Amazon. What a strange event that would be. What, what's one piece of advice you would give people today that yeah. after this podcast, they can implement before they get the book to implement the other standards, the other ideas, the other practices that you describe. Well, the good news is with the miracle of the internet, you can get the book instantly delivered. Oh, I Kindle forgot Auto about that. <laughs> but let's just, I know what you're getting at. I know what you're getting at. Here's the thing. If you want to summarize my work over the past five years with one mantra, it's this. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Fundamentally, these behaviors that we look back at and we regret, right? That's, that's distraction in a nutshell. When we do something that we know we didn't really want to do, and then later we say, ah, why did I do that, right? I should have done something else. These are impulse control problems. It's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. Your brain isn't broken somehow. It's simply that we haven't learned the skill set to deal with these impulses in a healthy way that leads us towards traction rather than distraction. So it's all an impulse control problem, but the antidote is amazing. The antidote is not extreme willpower. You know, when I study people who are indistractable, none of them had tons of willpower and self-control, quite the opposite. Many of them would not describe themselves as having a lot of willpower and self-control. What they had was a system. What they had was practices in place to prevent them from getting distracted in the future, from helping them to help them do what they said they were going to do. So the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought that there is no distraction if we plan ahead. Because if you wait till the last minute, right? If the cigarette is in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If the chocolate cake is on the fork on the way to your mouth, you're going to eat it. Mm. If you sleep next to your cell phone ever, every night on your nightstand, it's going to be the first thing you reach for in the morning. It's too late. They're going to get you. You, you will lose unless you plan in advance. That's the difference between people who are distractible and people who are indistractable. Distractible people get distracted by the same things. Again, has a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. 
So you lagged lag just a second ago. Say, oh, sorry. say that again. Who was it that said that? I said, Coelho Coelho said that uh, he had a fantastic quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So if we keep getting distracted by the same things, how many times are we going to keep getting uh, distracted by Facebook or the news or Twitter? Are we going to keep complaining forever? Gosh, darn it. Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, you keep distracted. Okay, got it. Do something about it. How many times can we complain until we say, okay, now it's on me. So an indistractable person says, ah, okay, you distracted me once. Shame on you. I'm sorry. Wait. Yeah. Once, shame on you. <laughs> Second time, shame on me. Right? So I'm going to take steps today to make sure I don't get distracted tomorrow. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Beautiful. And, I, and I'm thinking about how much more time people would have if they followed the principles that you've described and, and what greater good they could bring to the world if they had more time. And is that some of the feedback that you've gotten from readers of your book? Uh, it's been amazing. I mean, yeah, just you saying that gives me goosebumps because I, I get emails from people every day. Uh, people, folks contacting me through my website about what they were able to accomplish now. You know, I just got an email actually yesterday from a, a gentleman who told me how he had these things that he's been delaying and procrastinating on for years. And for the first time in his life, he's actually doing uh, parents who are telling me how not only can they be good parents, but now they can find time to exercise. They can find time for their other ambitions and goals. Uh, because they have this time. So it's, it's, it's been really remarkable. Uh, the, the time is certainly there. It's about how we spend it wisely that matters. Beautiful. So tell us how we do get a hold of you or how we stay attached to you after this podcast. Uh, and Absolutely. Um, yeah, also, so also whether or not there's a, a regular program, uh, newsletter, whatever communication source that people might be able to find that, that can lead them to greater pearls of wisdom from you. Absolutely. I appreciate it. So if you go to my website, nearandfar.com, it's spelled N-I-R, like my first name. So N-I-R, nearandfar.com. And uh, at nearandfar.com, you'll find an 80-page indistractable workbook that we uh, wrote but couldn't fit into the final edition of the book. It got too big. So I made it available for free. It's completely complimentary at nearandfar.com. And there's also a newsletter uh, I publish my own articles every week, as well as a, a, a digest of the latest in behavioral design and the science of distraction and how to stay focused on what's important to you. Uh, and all that's free at nearandfar.com. Beautiful. Anything you want to leave us with at this point? Oh, I really appreciate it. These were fantastic questions. I'm, I'm uh, uh, really flattered and, and so happy that uh, you found the book helpful. And uh, yeah, stay strong, stay indistractable. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Nir. It's been a pleasure having this conversation with you, and I look forward to reading your next book. You got something brewing? Uh, at some point. It'll take me a few more years, but yeah, at some point, I'll have something new. <laughs> and I want to I shout out to our viewers and listeners that these books are life-changing, and they're invaluable for you to find more time and energy, focus, dedication, all of those keywords to improving your life and by extension, improving the lives of those around you. So thank you very much, Nir. We look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. With every show, we ask our guests to share a video of them doing something fun. One of their favorite songs, a few lines from a book they enjoyed, or a scene from a great movie. Something that matches their hopes, dreams, and good work. And then we give this to you. Because laughter and beauty soothes, heals, and changes us. 
You can find and unwrap this gift on any of our social media sites. Thank you for participating in this podcast. Until next time, keep an eye out for change. Good change. And join our movement at kenstreeter.com.